welcome to episode 15 of Anatomy of Tone. In this week's podcast, we're going to dig into the Effectrobe tube drive. It's a real 100% analog tube overdrive pedal that sounds and reacts like a real amplifier. I'm going to talk about the concept or the technique of audiation, which is being able to conceptualize music in your head and know what it'll sound like before you even play it. We're also going to talk about using a monthly or yearly planner to keep track of our practice routines to ensure that we're always pushing ourselves and being able to appreciate when we've gained new skills that we've been working on. We're also going to check out a song called Too High from Stevie Wonder's record Inner Visions. If you're digging the podcast, please leave me a review. Send me a note at anatomyofguitartone.com if you want to talk about topics or you have any questions that you would like to have answered on the Anatomy of Tone podcast. I'm available for guitar, bass, drum lessons. I also could get into soundscaping and developing sounds with synthesizers, programming, do music theory, music composition lessons, uh, engineering lessons. Basically, I cover a lot of area in music, as you could tell. So if you want to talk to me about maybe setting up a lesson, seeing if we're a good match, you can contact me at anatomyofguitartone.com. I'm also available for session work. If anybody needs guitar, drums, bass, synth on a record, or if they need a great vocalist, let me know I have access to amazing vocalists. Shoot me a line. I can also help you out there as well as I score for film and TV, documentaries, video games. If anybody's looking for somebody to compose for any of those platforms, Please reach out. I'd love to discuss more. Let's dive in. I'd like to talk about a skill and a term called audiate. Now, audiate means basically to be able to imagine what music will sound like without hearing it. Let's say somebody gives you a piece of music on paper and you have to look at it. Just by looking at it, you'll be able to imagine what it will sound like. This would be the same case if somebody explained music to you. You'd be able to imagine what it sounded like without hearing it, or you can imagine music in your head without actually having to sit at the instrument and play it to know what it sounds like. This is an incredibly powerful skill, and it's been shown that people that are at the highest level of musicianship have developed these skills quite considerably. And it makes a lot of sense because if you can imagine something, it's a lot easier to then state it rather than being surprised by the end result. But how do we get better at audiation? Is this something that we can develop as a composer or as a musician? And it may seem a little elusive. One of the things is we have to make strong associations with music. You know, I do recommend to people to learn to read music and not everybody wants to do it. And technically you don't have to do it, develop audiation. It just and it gives us a, a great place to practice audiation because we have to literally look at something on paper and, and try to create it in our minds. So there happens to be a lot of exercises that we can use. And also it does give us more forms of association so that's one thing I like about reading and writing music is that it gives me more places that I can make these strong associations. So sometimes when somebody is singing to me a part that they want played rhythmically or melodically, I actually envision what that would look like written out in sheet music because it's, it gives me one more association that I can, I can bond with it now. 
I like to use visuals a lot. I'm a visual person. So attaching a visualization to an idea or trying to remember something or a musical line is helpful. When somebody gives a rhythm to me, let's say they go da-da, 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 I see that on paper. And of course, I didn't tell you where the tempo was. So you could either interpret that as Sixteenth note pattern or an eighth note pattern. Let's let's actually keep it simple and let's do eighth notes. So da 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 da. da. I'm seeing that as two eighth notes, an eighth note rest, another eighth note, two eighth notes, an eighth note rest, another eighth note. So one inch and three inch and one inch and three inch and that's how I actually visualize that in my head. So I started out playing drums. It was my first instrument. Learning how to read music began for me with the drum kit. I tend to still see rhythms a lot in my head, which I think is one of the most important things to actually see about music because rhythm is the core. It's not actually melody. It's not actually harmony. Rhythm is really at the core of music. And studies have shown that the average listener or somebody that doesn't understand anything about music is able to decipher bad music often by bad rhythm. They will notice that somebody is off if their rhythm isn't tight before they will recognize a, a bad pitch or a mistake in a, in a lyric. So I tend to see things a lot as rhythms and this is where reading music has helped because uh, obviously that made that association for me when I was young. I also practice audiation a lot of times by opening some sheet music and it could be a book of drum rhythms or it could be a classical score and I'm looking at it, I'm trying to imagine what the rhythms sound like first of all and then of course later on we're going to talk about associating pitches with this and having an idea. You don't need to have perfect pitch in order to execute this and sometimes even if you're not perfect with the pitch distances between the notes uh, that you're looking at while you're audiating it's more about sometimes associating the distance or getting a good idea of the, the shape of where the melody is moving and the harmony is moving. So what do I mean about this? If we're looking at a melody line and then we can hear the contour of the melody line, okay, well, it starts on a low note and it moves up, moves up again, and it comes down and it moves up again. Okay, we now, if you can visualize in your head that shape, up, up, down, up. Okay, we, we see that as a graph in our brain that gives us an association to what that might sound like. So as we're about to play our instrument, we can start to help remember and think about what that kind of shape is going to sound like. Imagine that in your head. But this just doesn't stop at thinking about the contour or the shape of a line. We can also make certain associations about intervals. Over time, if you spend enough time training your ear, you can start to hear what the distances are between notes. You'll start to recognize a minor third, a major third, a perfect fifth, a major sixth. You'll be able to imagine in your head if you're singing something, what those intervals might be. So again, you're making strong associations with sound. Okay, just saying a line, what do I think those intervals are? Or I think the basic makeup of that is. And the same thing goes with chords. We really get used to the sound of one chord moving to the four chord. 
really get that ingrained in your head, you eventually don't have to sit at your instrument to recognize that sound, whether you're imagining it in your own composition or if it's playing on a song that you're listening to. This can really speed up the learning process. A lot of times when I'm learning a song, I can recognize a lot of the chord movement before I even touch my instrument. Now, I don't have perfect pitch, so that doesn't necessarily mean I know exactly what key signature the song is in, but I recognize movements. And one thing I've done is spent time to record examples of chord movements and just loop them and play them over and over again over weeks. And I don't do them all at once. Let's say I do uh, one major chord to a six major chord because that's a very specific sounding movement that I want to recognize because it sticks out when it happens and I want to be able to hear it and make that association. So I've recorded, you play whatever instrument you want to play, but I just record that movement one to major six, major one to major six. Do it a few times and I just set that on loop and whatever playback device I'm listening to and I'll do it for five minutes every day. Just listen to it over and over again for a week, a couple of weeks, just so you can you can hear it over and over again. I'm not filling my brain with too many of these examples. Like I'm just only doing that one. That's it every day. And over time, you're really going to learn it. So if you hear a song and they go from that major one to major six chord, you're going to go, I know what that is because you've really listened to it. If you take observations while you're listening to it, don't just listen to it and just zone out. You observe. How does it make you feel? If you had to imagine that as being a flavor in food, what would it be? Or what color does it represent to you? Is it, is it bright? Is it an orange color? And what does it remind you of? Does it remind you of a life experience? Having these mental representations or deeper understanding of the sound of that one to major six chord is going to help imprint it in your brain, which is going to help you recall it later. This is going to help you audiate it later, know what that's going to sound like without actually having to hear it. This could be such a powerful tool because it allows you not only to play songs faster, if you get on stage and somebody is playing a song that you don't know, you're able to jump in and figure out that song so much faster because you start to recognize the movement either between the notes or the chord movements or the rhythmic patterns that they're playing. I use it a lot as a composer. Sometimes I write music in my head without touching an instrument, and I can do that because I start to be able to, to recognize what some of the ideas I'm playing. It doesn't mean I'm always perfect, but I get pretty close. And the same thing happens after I come up with an idea for a song. So I might be at the piano, which is where I do a lot of my composing, and I start with a basic idea, and I'll put it in Sibelius. And then once I'm in Sibelius, a lot of times I'm not sitting at the instrument. I might hear something, and I imagine what something else would sound like. Like, so I just start writing it out and then I imagine another part with it and I write it out. So sometimes after I have a core idea, I'm able to keep expanding on that by audiating and hearing things because I constantly hear music in my head and it took me a while to be able to figure out how to get it out of my head as it was represented, be able to, to understand what I was hearing. It seemed to almost be locked behind a door. It was like in there and I, I couldn't have the key to get it out. I I didn't have the key to get it out. So once I got the key to get it out, which was audiation, it really opened up a whole world for me. Now the same thing goes with soloing and improvising. A lot of the greatest soloists have an idea of what they're gonna play is gonna sound like before it. So the question comes up a lot of time in my lessons. How do I know which mode to play over a chord or scale? Well, you do because you have to build strong associations 
with those scales and know what they sound like. You don't just want to know what the scale positions and boxes look like. That's not really going to tell you a lot about how the sound is going to pair with whatever music you're playing. It's really strong. It's really important to understand what a pentatonic scale, either major or minor, is going to sound like against a given chord, or a Phrygian mode is going to sound like at a given chord, or a Mixolydian mode, go on and on, diminished scales, like all these different scales. The key to unlocking how to use those is to be able to audiate how they sound before you play them. So that way you can pair them and have a general idea of what the outcome is going to be like. So let's talk about how we can practice audiation. I mentioned being able to read music. It's helpful because immediately you have to look at something and try to imagine what it sounds like and play it in your head. Another way is to listen to a lot of music or say, listen to a song, step away from that song, try to sing the song in your head, each of the parts. What the bass line sound like? What does the melody line sound like? What's the drum part sound like? Can you sing out the drum part? Can you imagine what it sounded like? The more that you can hear these things and represent them in your brain, the stronger you're, you're going to make those associations. You're like, oh, it's a similar beat that was in the song I listened to. Over time, you're going to build strong pathways to be able to recall similar patterns or associations. of all time. It's really phenomenal what he did with, I would say, what had already been established harmony and sort of reinvented it or presented it in ways that I think our ears hadn't heard before. Incredibly creative and incredibly knowledgeable and deep. I want to look at Too High from his record Inner Visions this week, which came out in 1973. There was a section of the song, well, I mean, the whole song is amazing, but there was one section that stuck out to me that I thought would be cool to observe and maybe think about using as a songwriting technique. It's the part where he's saying too high. There's just something so interesting about the way that he was moving down to get to a destination. Now, there's no way to know what Stevie was thinking about unless he were here to explain himself, but I'm just going to maybe observe it from an analytical point of view and maybe give some insights of how we can approach using it. So the first thing to observe is that there is chord movement that is moving down. Now, our home chord is going to be an A minor nine chord, and we could just think about it as an A minor chord to simplify it. And actually, in fact, I'm going to approach all these with very simple chords until we talk about dressing the chords up. So our destination is this A minor chord. So now we can think about how much time do we have to get to this A minor chord. So just imagine you have some time to kill. 
and you're trying to think, well, what am I going to do when, when I have that time to kill? And nowadays, most people are going to get on their phone, right? And just look on social media or something. But think about it. It's like there used to be a bunch of different ways that you would you would kill time. Sometimes people will play solitaire or do different things. So I'm just trying to make this association to plan in your head that, okay, we have maybe in this case in, in Too High, there's three measures of music that we're going to fill in order to get to our home A minor chord. So he's looking ahead and saying, okay, I have to get to this spot, but I want to buy some time until I get there. How am I going to do that? Well, one thing we do is we can estimate how much time we have to fill. In the case of too high, there are three measures of music. And then once we know there's three measures of music, we can think of how fast we want the chords to move. In other words, how many chords we want to fit in that spot, what we would call the harmonic rhythm, meaning the rate of the chord changes. Once we know that, then we could decide what kind of movement we want to make. In the case of too high, Stevie chose whole steps to work his way down to the A minor 9 chord. Now the trick here is, although the destination was the A minor 9 chord, Stevie had his eyes on the half step above the destination chord. So in this song, A minor nines are our home chord and Stevie was looking towards getting to B flat right above A minor. Now, the reason that he probably chose this note is that B flat, if we think of it as the root function, it would actually be a tritone substitution for the five chord and that would resolve to the one chord. This is a common thing that happens in a lot of jazz and he was maybe considering that. And one thing that he did actually is when he landed on that B flat, which is the flat five substitution, a tritone sub, he actually then did go to the true five chord of A minor nine, which is E, to resolve to A minor. Okay, so I know that's a lot, right? So let me let me move back a little bit. Okay, our home chord is A minor nine. So we're gonna buy some time to get there. So he decides to move from F sharp in whole steps down to get the B flat, which is a half step above our A minor nine chord. So whole steps, F sharp, E, D, C, B flat. Those notes also belong to the whole tone scale. With the lot of time we had to get to our home chord, starting from F sharp allowed us the right number of chords to play rhythmically to get to that position. Now, we could have just gone from that B flat to A, and that would have been an interesting and cool resolution because, like I said, our ears would hear that as a tritone sub. But he decided to play the five chord in there, so he had to account for that in the timing as well. So he didn't just allot the time to the B flat, he allotted time to include the five chord in there as well. So right up to now, we've just been talking about root note movement, which I think is a great place to start. A lot of times when people are mapping this stuff out or trying to get used to these ideas, they're expanding their viewpoint way too far and they're thinking of chord coloration and, and a lot of stuff that can blurry the, the view a little bit. So if you're just looking at root function and just think about root notes and how you might want to move around, that's going to simplify the process a little bit. So I know we have an A note and if I looked, okay, I have F sharp, E, D, C, B flat, just looking at the root notes and I go to E to A, then we have a clear line of where the bass is going to move. And then from there, we could just think about how we're going to dress those root notes up, what kind of chord shapes we're going to use. So that's at the core 
of what's happening in the song. And I think that we can think about how we might be able to use this in our own composition. Uh, the steps I would follow to start is to know where your home chord is, figure out how much time you have to get to your home chord, move that far away from where your home chord is and move backwards, descending in whole steps and leave room for the root note of the five chord before we return to our home one chord. Now let's talk about dressing up those chords and adding coloration to them. Stevie uses something in this composition called chord planing, planning, planing. I've heard people say it both ways. So uh, I think chord planing is the actual term. What that really means is just that we're gonna take the same shape of a chord and we're gonna move it in parallel motion. So we're just taking the same chord shape and moving it around. This often happens in half step or whole note movements, but still I think it's just good to think of chord planing as just taking this shape and just moving it the same exact shape up or down. Now, he starts out in the descension when we're moving in the whole step part, the descending line. He's gonna take a major seven sharp five chord and he's just gonna move that same shape down all the way to B flat, and then he's gonna play a different chord color over the five chord. So really it's F sharp, major seven, sharp five, E major seven, sharp five, D major seven, sharp five, C major seven, sharp five, B flat major seven, sharp five. See, same chord, we're just moving down with that whole step or whole tone bass root movement. And when he gets to the five chord, he plays an E seven, sharp nine, sharp five. And that's gonna resolve to our home chord of A minor nine. So it's an altered five chord. Really, it's just the dominant chord, E seven, that resolves to our one chord. And I know this seems really complicated and it is complex, but the simplest way to think about this is to take the same chord shape that you have and just move it down until you get to a half step above your destination chord. And you can either just move right to your destination chord, or you can stick the five chord of the destination chord before it. you can alter that five chord or you could just play a regular dominant chord. These could be simple chords if you want to use major and minor chords. Say we wanted to get to that A minor chord, we're not even gonna worry about the nine. We can walk our way from F sharp major, E major, D major, C major, B flat major. Then we can go to E major to A minor the colorations to the chord are just adding a little more flavor to it, a little more spice. I wrote a companion blog on my website, anatomyofguitartone.com. If you go to the menu, then you'll see Anatomy of Tone, a link for that, which has all the blog materials related to the podcast. So anytime I talk about a lesson, if there's any other music-related topics I need to discuss, or if there's any other music related topics that I need to add additional content to, it will be there. And so in this additional content that I created for Too High, you can see in print me explaining the walkthrough of this as well as having a chord chart for this section of the song. I just know that sometimes it helps to see things visually as well. And this whole song is really built up with so many great ideas that you can take and elaborate on yourself. I would recommend checking out this whole record because it's one of Stevie's classic records and just so much to absorb from his brilliance.
topic that comes up a lot in lessons is the proper way to practice. It's funny because the word practice is a term that like, a lot of people think they know what means, but when it comes to having really productive or healthy practice routines, most people really don't know how to structure them it's because I think it's just been thrown out for many years. The idea is just, okay, you just pick up your instrument and you know, you play whatever you're working on or what you already know and you, you do it for an allotted amount of time. If you keep doing it for that much time, you just keep getting better. The truth of the matter is that that's not really true if you're not challenging yourself and if you keep practicing the same things you've always been practicing, you actually don't get better despite what the common belief has been. In order to get better, you have to have a structured system where you're constantly pushing yourself and you're keeping track of your progress and maybe now what you've achieved and what you're good at and what you can move on to incorporate new skills that uh, that are just outside your comfort zone. In order to make consistent progress and not have a distorted perspective of if I'm getting better or not getting better, I like to keep a yearly planner or it's like a practice journal where I keep information about what I've been practicing, how long I've been practicing it, etc. Because what happens is one, I can look and make sure that I've been evenly practicing the skills I want to get better at. And two, I can see the progress I make without my mind the devil on my shoulder saying like, hey, you're still not good enough and you're not good at this. By looking through a planner and seeing like, well, two months ago what you were practicing and saying now like, oh, I could do that now. It just gives you a sense of progress as opposed to when you're not keeping a log or a journal. Sometimes you could just beat yourself up and feel like you're not getting better. But having a record of what you've been working on serves as proof that you have been making progress and helps you make consistent progress. This may sound a little new agey, but I really like to treat every part of the process with respect. So I bought a nice yearly planner and I have a nice pen that I write it with so I don't scribble. I try to write very carefully and make it neat and just think about mindfulness with the whole process. And that way I'm um, thinking about what I'm doing. I'm treating it with respect. I'm giving it a moment and I want to be able to read the notes when I look back and I'm not thinking of it haphazardly and just scratching something in really quick and you know, with a, with a pen that's not working or, you know, on, on crappy paper. Right. So this is why I, I bought a nice planner and it's not like you'd have to buy a $50 planner. I think I got one on Amazon for 15 bucks or something like that. And it's not scrapped paper or post-it notes that are going to get pushed out of order or random pieces of paper that are going to get shuffled throughout the year. It's a bound yearly planner and every day I can make notes of what I'm doing. So for me in there, because I play multiple instruments and I compose, I do a lot of different things. I have my daily routine broken up because I have a composition category in the daily notes, which give you like the day of the week and, and several lines to write your planning on. I have columns in there and I have one for composition, one for guitar, one for bass, drums, piano. So I'm working on a lot often at one time. And 
in each of those, I pick a couple of tasks to work on. And it's important not to fill up your, your daily planner too much. You don't want to extend what you're capable of maintaining on a daily basis. I think that's really important to make sure that you figure out how much practice time you have. And then you always make sure to leave a little time at the end of your practice time to have fun and just enjoy and jam and have it not be structured. But I would say about um, two thirds of your practice routine should be structured. And so I'm writing things into my daily planner of the things that I want to work on. There's some things I've been working on recently. I've been working on some double bass drum techniques on the drums. I've been working on some walking bass lines because it was something that I want to get better at. I've been working on knowing the names on the low B string on a five string bass, which is funny because just by adding another string to the bass, it does something to your mind, which convinces you that you now don't know the notes on the E and the A, D and G strings, but you do. It just, it's a mind trick. So I've been just associating with my mind with that and trying to work against my, uh, the rebellion from my mind being like, you don't know this. Uh, so I've been working on uh, blindfold modes with the electric guitar, which is allowing me to see the fretboard of the guitar and play through chord changes without looking at the guitar neck. And I've been working on counterpoint in composition. And I've also been working on composing in the impressionistic style, which is sort of like the Debussy style of music. So there's a lot of things that I have that I'm jumping around and playing. And I didn't even talk about piano there, but I'm also working on chord voicings. Now, if I was just trying to do this in my head, there's no way I'd keep track of that. And of course, when I didn't have the journal and I wasn't, I was missing things and there'd be gaps in the playing and and so for me, obviously playing a lot of things, it really helps to be able to see things on a daily basis and keep track. And this is relevant even if you don't play a bunch of different instruments. If you're just playing one instrument, then still keeping track is really going to help your progress. There's another view in the yearly planner, which is more like a calendar view. So in that view, I just put the instrument that I've practiced that day. So that's just a, a very broad view of what I've been working on. So I could flip to that page like right now we're in August. So uh, I could flip to August 20. 2023 and each day I could see, well, did I play drums that day? Did I play bass, did I play guitar, piano, did I compose? And then I can flip ahead a few pages and get to where there's the breakdown of each individual day and I can see what skills I worked on for that day. And I do, like for the bass column, I put in, you know, uh, bass, uh, low B string notes, you know, or I might put walking drums, I might put double bass drum. Uh, if I'm working on a specific guitar technique, uh, harmonic minor scale, I might put that or blindfold modes that I've been working on as well. So this allows me to then have a finer view of, of what I've been working on. So I can see that uh, I've been working on something for a period of time and eventually I'm going to be able to swap some of those things out. Like uh, We'll get good at playing the harmonic minor scale, for instance, or whatever. And, and then the next month or two months later, I won't have to put that on my list anymore. Something else will take over that slot in the list and I can flip back through the months. I can go back to April and I can see, oh, that month I worked on you know, 
this specific technique, which I don't need to work on anymore. It's really powerful for empowering you to see the progress that you're making, but also to be very deliberate about your practice schedule. This is a very important point. One of the most important ingredients to consistent fast growth is deliberate practice. What is deliberate practice? It's being very regimented and scheduled and have a very clear idea of what you're working on every day, not just sitting and playing things you've played before or mindlessly playing. As I mentioned earlier, it's been shown that just doing the same thing over and over again doesn't actually make you better. So there's been this term thrown around a lot about 10,000 hours of practice. If you reach 10,000 hours of practice, you're going to become a master your instrument. And that number was just somewhat rounded up or randomly picked. And it's, it's obscured too, because there's other factors that lead to those 10,000 hours making you a master your instrument. So if, if you're not properly using your time, then the 10,000 hours isn't actually going to get you to that goal. So it could be less than that. It could be more than that. It really depends. I think that people have just leaned into that and thought, well, if I just keep practicing, then I'm going to get better. But the thing that really makes the difference is the deliberate practice, being very conscious of the elements or the techniques that you're working on at any given time and constantly pushing yourself right outside your comfort zone. You don't want to push too far out your comfort zone because it's just too far out of reach and it becomes frustrating. So you want to be a little harder than what you used to, but not so hard it's discouraging or you just can't do it. This is where having a coach, mentor, teacher really helps you clarify because they know what's coming ahead in the trail. So they're able to, I would say, just kind of keep feeding you, you know, a breadcrumb trail to help get you just a little further each time, as opposed to you trying to teach yourself and sometimes getting frustrated because you, you don't really know what's coming next on the trail. And so you're jumping around and sometimes getting frustrated or, or lost before you find yourself. But deliberate practice with keeping a journal and what you're doing every day, somebody helping you to tell you what are the next steps to work on to just keep you pushing forward a little bit. These two elements along with breaking apart your practice regimen in an organized manner, which I will talk about in a future episode, that that combination of elements can really allow you to keep progressing at a really steady rate and not get stuck or, or stay at a level where you're you know, not progressing. It's interesting, when I was younger, I think I felt like practice, although I like to practice a lot, I just like playing instruments and making music. So I kind of do it all the time. But even with that, there was this idea of practice. And like I was saying, the 10,000 hours and it's practice and practice isn't always enjoyable. That uh, it also kind of creates a, a bad air about practice. And I think some people see it as being okay, it's just something you have to suck up and do until you can get to that point and then you don't have to do it anymore. But the truth of the matter is, is that practice is always going to be in your life. And even when you see people who are masters at their craft, they're all still working on their craft. They're trying to advance. They're trying to push themselves past the comfort zone. They don't just get to a point where they're stationary. People that are exceptional in what they do are always pushing to go further. And in order to do this, you sort of have to make peace with 
practice and maybe treat it a different way. And this is one of the points I was trying to make about having like a nice pen and a nice journal or a nice yearly planner and writing carefully in it, just treating the whole process with respect. is just a different way of approaching it. So, you know, you're having a different relationship with practice and it's not such a chore, even though it's work and even the best of musicians find it that it's sometimes not very pleasurable and, and the things that they're working on are, are frustrating and it's not always the most fun activity that you're going to engage in but it's one of the most important activities you're going to engage in for the progress of your instrument. So I just find that if you're treating the whole process with care, you're going to get better results and you're going to enjoy the process more and it allows you to just keep track of where you've been and where you're going in a more organized manner. Plus, allow you to feel better about yourself because you're going to see constant growth and you're also going to see what days Maybe you weren't practicing as much. So if you feel like you're not getting better, you can open up the planner and you could say, oh, well, okay, yeah, last week I only practiced three days for a very short period of time. And by the way, if you need to, you could also mark down how much time you practiced each element in the planner. This allows you to see how you're dispersing your practice time and make sure that you're doing it evenly amongst all the skills that you're working on. But often it'll tell you a lot about why you're having frustration and not progressing. And I bet you'll find aside from some skills just taking a long time to develop, which is often 30, 90 days to acquire a new habit, that you're going to find that some of the weeks that you're feeling less good about yourself and not progressing is that it's the potential that you didn't practice as much that week or your practice wasn't as focused or as evenly dispersed amongst the new skills that you're trying to work on, which also helps with your psychology because then instead of feeling like you're just not good at this, you can see there's a reason why you're not getting better at any given skills because, well, you didn't practice it as much that week or that month. And thus, you know, you need to put more time in it and so much have to do with you as an individual player. It had to do with the structure to which that you've been working. Even after all the years that I've been playing and the skills I've acquired, I still keep a yearly planner because it always helps in the process because I'm always learning new things. So I encourage you to try it and see how it helps you. This week's pedal chemistry, I want to talk about one of my all-time favorite pedals. It's the Effectrode Tube Drive. I've been searching for a long time to find a drive that satisfied me. Now, it doesn't mean I don't like other drive pedals. TS9 and um, other drive pedals are, to me, are very stylized and cool. But I was having a hard time finding like a home base overdrive. I think primarily because. I really like the sound of tube amps pushed so that the preamp and the power amp tubes and the transformer are all saturating. Just I really like that sound and the feel of it. It's a very saturated 
overdriven tone that still allows for some dynamics. It's not completely compressed and the low end doesn't get truncated. The problem for me with a lot of overdrive pedals is that they do cut some of the low end and they're a bit over compressed. Now, sometimes I like that because it's perfect for the situation, but that's not how an amp sounds when say it's about on seven, between six and seven. I really like tube amps like between I don't know, five and, uh, and eight is like usually the sweet spot for me occasionally like all the way up on a tweed or some amps but there's magic that happens when you have an amp between let's say five and eight and the drive pedals that mostly are on the market they don't do that even though like, say it's a tube-like overdrive i think it's not that people aren't designing good pedals i think in general it's an impossible thing to do without tubes and just running at, uh, at like plate voltage like an amp i just don't think it could be done so i've gone through so many drive pedals and uh, i keep a lot of them because sometimes I stack them with other pedals. I do keep a Tube Screamer. I keep a Max and SD9 Sonic Distortion, which is a, a very underrated pedal. I've got Klons. Now, I don't really treat Klons like drive pedals. I treat them like boost pedals. Uh, but I have the Keeley DNM Drive. There's a bunch of different drive pedals I've used. The Timmy a lot. I've used the Earth Drive. There's a whole variety of them, and I think they're fine. But it, there's always something missing, and I just struggled when I had to play in rooms where I couldn't use my amp cranked and I couldn't get that sound and I had to find a way to play at a lower volume but get that saturated sound. I eventually found my way to the Effectrode tube drive pedal. They're handmade in England. And what's interesting about them is they have three tubes in them. They run at actual plate voltage like an amplifier does. They're 100% tube circuitry. There's nothing silicon in it. It's just purely analog. And it acts like an amplifier pretty much because it is. I mean, it's running at the same plate voltage that an amplifier does. So what you get from it is you get this lovely low end that's wide open and you have lots of dynamics, whether you back off with your pick attack or you start digging in, you roll off your volume knob and your guitar, it reacts to everything very much in the way that an amplifier does. Now, I've not found any other pedal to do this. I've tried other tube bass pedals, but even though a lot of them say they're tube-based, there's still some things in the circuitry that aren't 100% analog or, say, the tube signal path. So they're not exactly emulating the amp, and I've heard some of those things. Now, it's not that they're not usable tones, but I just was on this quest to get this sound that was wide open and less compressed. I've been so psyched with this pedal. I've had it for a number of years now. I've toured all over the place with it. It's always on my touring board for two reasons, sometimes for just the overdriven sound, and a lot of times just as my preamp sound. So I have it on most of the time, and it's at like a medium gain volume, just about like where you'd start to get a guitar amp breaking up. It would allow me to go into different rooms or deal with a variety of backline amps, have a consistent sound every night, playing at different volumes, which often was the case because the size of the rooms were changing frequently. And this pedal was just really kind of the magic. You don't really feel like you're playing a pedal. It really feels and sounds like an amplifier. There's not really many things. I don't actually, I don't feel like there's anything else on the market that can really do that. So often when people come to me asking about drive pedals to buy, ask a few questions first, because the thing with pedals is that it, 
people have very specific tastes and not everybody's looking for the same thing. So I try to discover, find out if what they're looking for is what I was looking for when I was looking for the tube drive, which was, I was mentioning, you know, keep saying it over and over again, like a, a broken record, but it's just that it's so rare to find this is the wide open dynamics and the wide open frequency range. So nothing gets chopped. The highs aren't getting chopped off. The lows aren't getting chopped off. If you're looking for that, then I recommend the tube drive because there's no other substitute. And some people are actually looking for the compressed cutoff or truncated sound of the tube screamer because people find that combination works well for their playing sometimes. So for that reason, it's always nice to have a couple pedals around because depending on what your circumstances are, you might want to use one or the other. But I really think having the tube drive, if you're into overdrive, is kind of a must. And if you really like the sound of plugging into an amp and getting that sound when the amp is warmed up and cooking, uh, I don't really think there's any substitute for that. So I use this all the time on the road. I use it all the time in the studio. I use it with bass guitar, synth, and put on drums. I, do, I use it everywhere as outboard gear for my recording setup and also just in the signal path. And we're going to listen to some of these examples, but let's just talk briefly about the features on the tube drive. You know, it's 100% analog class A. All tube means that there's no silicon in the signal path and the unit operates at plate voltage. You can also swap tubes on the tube drive, which is what I did. I put a 12AU7 in one of the slots and wanted lower gain. It came with a two 12AX7s in the swappable spots. So I just wanted a little bit more of a mild breakup because I was using it a lot as a preamp. And so I wanted to have a wider range of those lower gain settings and it did just that I put one in and I haven't looked back I really love it but some people are going to prefer the the higher gain maybe a little brighter fizzier sound of a 12ax7 but what's great is that they're real easy to swap in and out so you can try and experiment and see what the differences are there's two switches on the back of the tube drive. One is an actual treble boost. And what happens with a lot of EQs is that they're cuts. They're not boosts. They actually will cut the signal. And so you get some signal loss when you start cutting the signal. This is how Fender amps work, by the way. But this pedal, it actually is a true boost on it. And it does works the same for the bass boost as well. So with the bass boost, treble boost on, it actually boosts your signal so you're not losing signal. And it just sounds really lovely. And it's a pleasant boost. Uh, sometimes when you kick a treble in or something on a pedal, it could get harsh. But uh, I find that I play around with the switches a lot on this pedal. It's not a set it and forget it. Depending on what amp I'm playing with or what instruments I'm playing with, I may switch it. For instance, I did some examples in what you're going to hear coming up where I use the Prophet 10 from Sequential Circuits, an analog synthesizer, and I liked the treble boost on it. It was adding a nice presence and really capturing the full range of the synthesizer. Sometimes with some guitar amps, I like to turn the treble boost down and just crank up the tone knob. It's a bit of a different EQ profile depending on where you have the switches. So I will switch them up and down and then mess with the tone knob just to compare and see if that extra presence or extra bass boost excites the amp in a cool way. 
One small detail, I really appreciate that Phil Taylor, the designer and owner of Effect Road Pedals, included in the tube drive is the LED. He made sure that the LED would be visible in daylight. Phil has a long history of being a guitar tech and toured a lot, so he understands how tricky it can be on stage in daylight to be able to tell if your pedals are on. One little quirk about the tube drive is the bypass switch. It's not an instantaneous switch between the tube drive being on and off. There's a little pause in between switching sounds. So it's not going to be the type of pedal that you're just going to kick on at the chorus, like right on the downbeat and have it drop in. It doesn't really bother me because I tend to leave the pedal on all the time. For me, it acts a lot more as a preamp pedal than it does in something that I'm just kicking in for solos. You can do that. You just have to keep it in mind that you might have to let it go for one second or so just to, to, to let it kick in. The tube drive does require its own 12 volt power supply. And I've known people that complain about this because they want everything to just be simple nine volts on their power supplies. But I encourage you to look past that. Like you could just put a little adapter underneath your pedal board and connect the wall wart just for the tube drive, run all your other pedals off a of Strymon Zoomer or something, but have the extra power supply for your tube drive. It's worth it. And the tube drive, it's it runs at plate voltage. It needs a lot of power. You can't run off nine volt. The reason it sounds so amazing, well, aside from the really great engineering of the pedal, is that it's running at plate voltage. You just need more power to do that. People are just really obsessed with trying to find this sound in the smallest pedal possible with taking nine volt adapters. And it's just, there's too many compromises there. So if there's one pedal that you're gonna take that chance with and use an additional wall wart for, I would use it with the tube drive. It's worth it for that. It's not a small pedal by any means, so it's going to take up some real estate on your pedal board, but it's such an integral part of my like just bass guitar tone that it's worth taking up the real estate and having 12 volt power supply for it underneath. Now I use several effect road pedals often on one gig, so they make a power supply called the Atomic Power Supply, which powers up to four effect road pedals. So I have that underneath my pedal board along with a Strymon Zuma. So I have the Atomic and a Zuma, and that way, no matter what I'm swapping in and out of my pedal board, I can power multiple effect road pedals and I can power multiple nine volt DC pedals at the same time. Let's listen to some examples. I'm gonna start with a Fender Stratocaster that has FSC 59 hand scatter wound pickups in it. It's going to run into the Effectrode tube drive, which is going to go into a Headstrong Lil King Reverb. The Lil King is pretty much a black panel era Fender Princeton with a 12 inch speaker in it. That's the only modification I had. They usually came with 10s, I prefer 12s. And the Headstrong, I think, is pretty much the finest example of somebody making those black panel circuits. You know, Wing just really understands that sound. And they're my favorite black panel sound from Fender, as well as brown panel. He makes the brown uh, deluxes and I think the brown Princeton as well. He just really makes fantastic amplifiers. I wanted to start with the black panel sound because a lot of people have them. They're in back lines. I think it's a really good starting place to hear how using it as a preamp, combining it with stacked pedals, just how it works in a pretty conventional environment that we deal with a lot. This is on the neck position.
try the bridge position now. I'm going to turn up the gain knob on the tube drive so we can hear how much low end and body is actually in the sound of this pedal. It really sounds big with a Stratocaster on the bridge pickup. keep the gain up and I'm going to adjust my playing dynamics as I'm going through the example. Let's hear what some slide guitar sounds like. to hear how the tube drive sounds with stacking another drive pedal before it. So I'm using a Maxon SD9 Sonic Distortion, very underrated distortion pedal in front of the tube drive, just get more saturation. You can hear how they would work together. example I'm not using the SD9 anymore so it's the tube drive the Lil King I'm using an analog man ADRX20 
now without the tube drive. switch guitars i'm going to use a sg custom with gemini mercury one humbuckers in them that are hand scattered wound i'm going to run that into the effectrode tube drive into a vox ac15 i'm also going to have the analog man ardx20 analog delay tied into the chain sometimes Let's check out a real gritty punk tone. example will be a bluesy guitar riff. I really like how the tube drive that's saturating pretty heavily is running into a Vox AC15 that is also crunchy. So it's not a clean amp. The amp is breaking up and the tube drive is breaking up. So the two of them together create this almost like like tone that almost seems like it's about ready to just break like it's almost at its limit this has a bit of like a sag kind of sound to it which i really like this is a cool combination of using the tube drive into a dirty amp as well Let's try Les Paul with Voodoo 59 PAF humbuckers in it into the Effectrode tube drive into a Marshall SV20 Plexi with Vintage 30 speakers. to switch the tube drive off and then on so you can hear the difference. I really like that we can get a nice sharp attack but really defined and full low end.
going to play the like rock style solo and you can really hear how the Effectrode tube drive and the Marshall are working together with cascading gain to create a really great lead tone. It really sounds a lot like a guitar amp breaking up. You get that initial transient from the guitar pick coming through. So that's not compressed and cut off. And also the sustain and the overall balance of the tone being rich. I think this is a wonderful tone. You get great sustain out of it. I have the drive knob all the way up and I have the um, treble boost off, but I have the bass boost on. And I'm not hitting the Marshall super hard. I am hitting it a little harder than if the pedal was off. So I'm above unity gain just a little, just to kiss the front end of the amp. Otherwise the amp is medium gain. The pedal is on a high gain setting, although it's not as high gain as it would be with a 12AX7 because of the tube swap that I made. we hear how the tube drive sounds using a Telecaster and a Tweed amp. So I'm going to use a Fender 52 reissue Telecaster with Voodoo 52 pickups in it. It's going to run into the tube drive. It's going to run into the Analog Man ARDX20 analog delay into the Victoria 35115, which is the pretty much the Fender Tweed Pro circuit with a 15-inch speaker. Lovely amp, such an amazing circuit. And just those combinations, let's hear how they work together. This next example will be using a grunge-like sound. I kept the same signal path, except I added the Analog Man mini chorus into it just to get a little modulation happening.
also love using the tube drive as a saturation device with a lot of keyboards and even other instruments. Let's listen to an example that I made using the tube drive. It's sort of a Twilight zone kind of sound. Now the tube drive is tied in after the Mellotron and before the Surfy Bear metal spring reverb. push the tube drive now same signal chain the mellotron into the tube drive into a surfy bear metal spring i have the mellotron on the slow speed for the vibraphone so the slow speed mixed with just the saturation and the reverb is creating kind of really neat sound it's almost like a synth sound but it's just not so it it reminds you as the essence of something that's oddly familiar using a sequential circuits Prophet 10 synthesizer with a synth bass sound with a arpeggiator on to create a cool grungy arpeggiated bass pattern. This will be the same Prophet 10 into the tube drive, but this time I'm going to run into the CXM 1978 from Chase Bliss, which is pretty much the Lexicon 224 reverb to get sort of an ambient soundscape happening now. I still have the arpeggiator on the keyboard and I'm operating the filter with the hand that's not playing the notes just to open up the filter and hear how that interacts with the tube drive and the reverb to create a spacey's moody vibe.
thank you for joining me for episode 15 of Anatomy of Tone. I'm going to be taking the next week off for the holiday. My assumption is that a lot of people are going to be off from work and not in their normal routines. So I have planned an interview with one of my favorite guitar players, Robbie Mangano. He's worked with Sean Lennon and Ricky Lee Jones and Tom Morello and a number of different people. He's just such a, a gifted musician. He's a, a bassist, a, he plays keyboards, guitar, he's just multi-instrumentalist, a composer. We had a really great conversation, so I want to share that. So after next week, the next episode back, episode 16, will be an interview with Robbie and we'll pick up. So I hope everybody has a great holiday week. I'm going to leave you with a song from Abby Ahmed called Bully. This is from her Tea With Shadows record. This is me and Abby on this whole track. What we tried to do, I think, within the track is basically about a bully or about you being a bully to yourself, essentially. And we tried to create that feeling within the instruments. So the guitar and the vocal is almost like one character. And then the bass and the drums come in and they add some tension. But finally, when the lead guitar solo comes in, it's fuzzed out guitar tone where really laid into the tremolo arm on a Stratocaster with the inspiration was a little bit of you got lucky from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers but taking in, into more of an extreme area but the fuzz guitar person is definitely the bully and so you feel this back and forth push against the original guitar line the fuzz line the vocals so uh, I hope you enjoy it you can check Abby out on Bandcamp the record is for sale on Bandcamp it's called Tea with Shadows and her website is abbyomit.com mm-hmm.